The New Testament reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's good morning. It's great to be with you. As you can probably tell from my voice, I'm a little bit under the weather, so I'm going to refrain from the greeting you with a holy kiss after the service, as the New Testament commands us to do. Um, I also just washed my hands, so don't worry about the communion bread. It hopefully is not uh, viral, um, at least not in a bad way. Um, we have, if you've been with us, been racing through uh, the letters, first and second letter to the church at Corinth, uh, pretty much since the summer. And then during the season of Lent, we've slowed down substantially, and we're looking at these verses uh, in eight Sundays, not only because they're very complex and the underlying Greek is very rich and difficult, and because this is the place where people write their dissertations, um, but it's also um, just full of gospel richness. And there's a power here, there's a raw sense of the gospel of the reconciliation of Jesus. Uh, taking root in our lives and emanating out from the inside and the interior of who we are to become changed people and changed lives, and that God has done something cosmic that has very personal implications. And He's been talking about this cosmic reconciliation that fundamentally changes how we see everything, and that if you're a Christian, that you are an ambassador of that reconciliation to others, inviting others into relationship with the living God. But it's not just about this vertical dimension between God and us, as I just said, but being caught up in God's love changes how we relate to one another. There's a horizontal dimension to this cosmic reconciliation. And Paul is telling the Corinthians in these two letters that you don't quite get it. 
There's a lot going on in your church that shows that you can't, you haven't quite grasped the full dimensions of this cosmic reconciliation. There's sin patterns, there's behaviors that need to change, but also just the way that you appear to look at life and look at me, as Paul the Apostle would say, the way that you look at the cross has not fully yet shaped who you are and your personal identity. And he tells them basically, once upon a time, we regarded Jesus only from a human point of view. And when we did, we didn't understand him, therefore, very well. But now we see him and everyone in a divine perspective, and it changes everything. The Archbishop of Canterbury, the current one, his name is Justin Welby. And he recently found out at the age of 60 that his father was not his real father. The one he grew up understanding as his dad was not actually his biological dad. And it's truly an extraordinary story, not only in the details, but also in how he embodies the love of Christ in his response to this news. And it was just last year that he discovered through a DNA test that his father was not Gavin Welby, a Jewish immigrant described by most of his friends as an alcoholic trickster after all, but in fact his real dad was Sir Anthony Montague Brown, a diplomat and Winston Churchill's private secretary. In other words, instead of a legitimate son of a drunk immigrant whiskey salesman, he's the illegitimate son of an English aristocrat. And not only does the story expose something salacious about sort of the button-down United Kingdom establishment mindset, but it does so in a place where we would think it would be doubly embarrassing, that is, in the church, and not only that, at the very highest levels of the Anglican Communion. Welby's earthly identity, it would appear, is up for grabs at the very deepest levels, But as remarkable as this news is and as interesting as this sort of um, the way that it changes his illegitimacy to legitimate, but the type of father he has is so different. What's incredible about the story is how Welby responded, and the London newspaper, The Telegraph, describes his response as better than a thousand sermons. They say Welby's response was extraordinary for its unabashed acceptance of the compromises that decorate most human relationships, and for his insistence that the news could not define him. Welby says, although there are elements of sadness and even tragedy in my father's case, this is a story of redemption and hope from a place of tumultuous difficulty and near despair in several lives. I know, he says, that I find who I am in Jesus Christ and not in genetics, and my identity in Him never changes. Better than a thousand sermons, the secular newspaper, The Telegraph, said. Well, Paul says, from now on, that is, because of the crucifixion and resurrection, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. 
Now, the words that we read here, the worldly point of view, is not directly in the text. It's a translation of the underlying Greek, and it's a good translation, but there are some problems with it. And other versions have often rendered it the underlying katasarka, according to the flesh. And they've done so possibly to avoid a misunderstanding that Jesus was not only God, the divine, glorified and exalted, but He was also of the flesh. And this has been one of the most important, most enduring, and most distinctive doctrines of Christianity, that God our Savior, the Son, was not only divine, but also very human. And so they were trying to be careful not to lose the tension there. And so our version translated the words according to the flesh by the phrase from a worldly point of view. But this has its own problems because how does a human escape making human judgments, whether about Christ or about ourselves or about one another? How do we avoid judging one another from a human point of view? And even if we grant that the gospel liberates us to make judgments by standards that are not merely human in origin, we make them nonetheless as human beings, as embodied people, and we can't fully transcend this worldly point of view. So something is going on here in Paul's mind that is a little bit different than that, that can't quite be captured by the from a worldly point of view. And I think Paul wants us to look at that, this in four different perspectives or four levels, we could say, four levels of meaning. And the first is probably the most straightforward, and that's how our translation has rendered it, to regard no longer from a worldly or a human point of view, is to confess that apart from Christ, apart from the intervention of one whose perspective is not earthbound, is not temporal. Ours will be forever limited in that way. And this is one of the oldest human realizations. It's to appeal to sort of the universally accepted, acknowledged finitude of human existence, our own inconstancy, our own provinciality, our own weakness, the weakness of the human species. It's hard to have a conversation with anyone, read a journal, read a novel that doesn't acknowledge that at some level, that we are stuck in our finitude, that we are only human could be written on every tombstone. See where this ended up. See where my life ended up. Or as Paul Simon says in his song on his recent record, which is really good, called The Werewolf, he says, the fact is most obituaries are mixed reviews. Life is a lottery that a lot of people lose. To judge from a worldly point of view is to judge from a point of view that is bound by time and is bound by our own lifespan. We're almost always lacking all of the facts as we render judgment. Even in intimate relationships, and perhaps mostly in intimate relationships, you can see this because your spouse, your children we realize almost daily that they only know and only recognize and understand a part of who we are, and they live with us daily. They know us only partially partially and find it difficult at times to understand us. 
To judge another person from a human point of view is to evaluate another human life based upon partial and partially misperceived information, and we always have to remember that. It keeps us humble, and it keeps us from making judgmental judgments on other people. Our understanding of even the most, the people that we're most intimate with is partial, and it's partially misperceived. Paul claims in verse 17 that anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. If someone is in relationship with him, their stories are not simply linear. It's not simply, their life is not simply an aggregate of all the experiences that they've had so far, because something is broken in from the outside. Something that's not bound by time has come in and has rearranged who they are in fundamental ways. Their identity, that they are new, somehow undermines, and in Paul's accounting, this newness is more totalizing and defining than everything that is wrong about them and everything that we see and would judge them because of. Someone who has hurt us deeply, the new creation has come. Something about that reality has changed fundamentally. And yes, we can deal with that, and we, not, we're, we don't just flush it away. But they are totalized in a new way as, pers- as a person who is new in Christ, not simply or fundamentally the person who has hurt us the most. But there's a second level of meaning which emerges when we realize that this phrase kata sarka, according to the flesh, is often translated and can be properly translated according to worldly standards, according to worldly standards. And this is a shift from simply how we see an individual to how we see them in those groups and those communities of meaning that they inhabit and to which they belong. Last year, the Atlantic monthly writer Victor Tan Chen wrote an article called Living in an Extreme Meritocracy is Exhausting. The subtitle is A Society that Glorifies Metrics Leaves Little Room for Human Imperfections. And he cites the principles of scientific man- management, which you've, if you've been to business school or taken a business class, you've doubtless read, written by Frederick Winslow Taylor uh, in the last century. And it's a book that much of our industrial production strategies come from. And in this book, he argued that companies needed to be pragmatic and methodological uh, (laughs) and methodical, there we go, and even at times ruthless in their efforts to boost productivity. And he traces this... Chen traces this idea of meritocracy back to Winslow Taylor that created this competition-based production upon what brings to the table of that company the most talent and the most output, and it can be ruthless if applied without care. And um, Chen says, when society fetishizes measurement and idolizes individual merit, at the expense of other things, it reinforces a go-it-alone mentality that is ultimately harmful. Indeed, the desire for an efficiency achieved through 
a never-ending gauntlet of appraisals. You ever feel like that at work? Never-ending gauntlet of appraisals is unhealthy. It exhausts workers by pushing them into constant competition with one another, vying for the highest rankings that, by definition, only a few people in the corporation or company can actually get. And so those few then judge the rest. They're the haves, but the people that don't have, the people that don't get the appraisals, that don't accelerate in the company, they judge themselves. And this judgmental attitude, he says, can turn inwards. The expansion of metrics means there is a prevalence of evidence that convinces many workers that they are inferior, not just at their job, but in some fundamental way, failing to meet the growing array of criteria to get or keep a good job often meant, in their minds, failing at life. There is a shame and sometimes self-blame replaying these past decisions in their minds about schooling, finances, careers, plunge them into a depression and even thoughts of suicide. They were losers, as one worker put it, not just in their job but in life and in who they were, in a society that values winning at all costs. The writer wonders, not Winslow Taylor, but Chen wonders about, at the end of this article, about a solution. And doing something about this, he says, will demand more than a technical solution. It will require challenging, deep-rooted notions of what success is and perhaps a measure of grace. Paul says that we are not to judge one another or, maybe more fundamentally and foundationally, judge ourselves by worldly standards or worldly metrics, we could say. We are not to judge ourselves by living in communities of meaning that place supreme value on output, on merit, on success, achievement, appearance. And we have to be able to identify those communities of meaning that we inhabit that message us, message us in those ways, to be able to say, I see what this ad is trying to say. I see what my company, I see what my community of meaning is trying to say about me and is trying to make me comply with this order of meaning in order to say no. We have to identify and be wary of ways also that Christian communities borrow these ideals of meritocracy and put them in place in the church, whereby we judge each other by which systems of theology we happen to abide by or believe in, by which denomination we're a part of, of who we've read and who we're reading now, of what we've done, or how we parent, how we educate our children, how we pray. These can always be communities of meaning that develop our identity for us by which we become very protective about, and we define ourselves by the wrong roots. None of these say the most important words about you, that if you are a Christian, you are in Him, that in Him you died, in Him you are raised to new life. These are the most important words. 
that you have received grace that Victor Chen describes in a rather ephemeral way, Paul nails down. And he says, your new community of meaning is the church that is founded upon the death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that alone. In Him, you see, you are a whole person before you venture out into the world. You are a whole person in Him as you walk into that interview, as you fill out that application for college, as you go into your appraisal for the month. Believing that you are in Him changes your perspective on how that turns out and what kind of appraisal the world and worldly standards provide for you. There is no achievement or failure which can alter your in Himness if you are a Christian. There's a third level, a little bit shorter than the other four or the other three. The word flesh is often used by Paul to indicate sin. It's a metaphor or euphemism for sin, and that is life that is turned in on itself, life that is self-referential. The flesh in Paul's nomenclature is the self-regarding self. It's those of us, all of us at times, who walk around measuring ourselves based upon how other people perceive us and how we're doing in the world. The self that views and values all others from the perspective of its own self-interest. That is, we walk around church, we walk around the schoolyard, we walk around work, defining other people based upon our own self-interest, not upon serving them or helping them. It's embodied by the old joke from the Hollywood actress on a first date, or Bette Midler and Beaches, if you've seen that movie. Well, that's enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? Thank you. To regard others according to the flesh is to regard them as a danger to or an enhancement of our self, our self-esteem, our place in the world. To regard other human beings according to the flesh is not only to regard them from a human point of view, to judge them according to worldly standards or appearances. It is to value them from the perspective of our own self-interest, our perceived self-interest. Alternatively, the new creation in Christ means that you have a stable identity that is predetermined and predefined before we move out into the world, that you are secure in God's love and His total acceptance so that you can now be ambassadors of reconciliation, not measuring people by how they promote your self-interest, but seeing others as objects of service, as objects of God's reconciling work in the gospel, and to view them that way. People to be brought into relationship with Jesus, not people toward whom you need to compete. And then there's one fourth and final level, and it's related to that third, but perhaps a little bit different, and it's very practical and very personal. The flesh as the organizing principle of life, life turned in on itself, also seeks to exist on its own power. 
and apart from the renewing presence of God. This is perhaps the American version of the flesh. I can do it. I'm going to do it on my own. Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. Flesh cannot see Jesus properly. It cannot see the gospel properly because it's committed to the one principle that is utterly opposed to Jesus and to the gospel, and that is self-sufficiency. But Paul says over and over that our hope is to be in something other than the self, in someone other than the self. God in Christ is reconciling the world. And we are intended to be called to be companions with that reconciling movement of God. And we as a church, we in our own lives, are meant to be a microcosm, a foretaste of what that looks like, of the world to come, that our lives are meant to bring a piece of that coming world into the present, that our church is to be a temple by which the presence of God dwells in richness and fullness, that when we pray, Thy kingdom come, we understand what that means, that Jesus' work now is to be worked out here and in our lives, and that we are dependent upon Him that we are participating in God's new creation and becoming God's church where this new creation is lived out and is identified and is supported and pushed outward. And so I guess that the chastisement for all of us, for myself, is that from this passage that we expect far too little from God. In our prayer life, in my prayer life for you and for the church and for lives I know are tangled up in different things, I expect far too little of God sometimes. I don't ask big enough things from from Him. I don't pray big enough dreams for in town and what we could become for the city. That's our chastisement or part of it from this passage. And I think also related to that is that we expect far too little of ourselves, that we're content oftentimes to be where we are, to say, well, I'll work on that later, to say, I know that I'm stuck in this pattern, but that's okay. Everyone is broken, as we talked about last week. We're content not to see the power, this improbable intervention of God creating something new in Christ first, but throughout the world that we're supposed to connect with in some way, that when someone looks at us, and when we look at ourselves and evaluate ourselves, that we're able to say, that is new. There is something improbable happening in your life. And I don't mean a get-with-the-program-get-busy kind of thing. I just simply mean not being content to stay where we are, not being content to say, I am stuck and forever will be, but to just simply invite God into our story and to say, God, what would your new creation look like in my life this week? And not everything is going to change, but something should be changing. And we should ask God about that, and we should expect that to happen. We are content oftentimes to set our expectations fairly low 
for what the new creation should look like. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians and to us in conclusion that when we do so, we are regarding Christ from a worldly point of view, from a human point of view. Paul is announcing a change of attitude, of perspective that has come about as a result of what God has done, a change so fundamental and so profound and so revolutionary that the only words he can think of are new creation, that something that has happened in Christ is as big as the passage that we read in Genesis, let there be light. That's what's in Paul's mind as he thinks about what happened to Jesus on the cross and what happened to the world. New creation. He's not outlining a set of duties for us simply to discharge. You see, this text is gospel, not law. It's grace, not works. It's gift, not human achievement. If anyone is in Christ, a new creation has come. We don't call it down, it comes. We simply have to be receptive. He or she is a new creation, is. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, part of our journey, part of our, our duty in this is simply to identify it, to look for it, to expect it, to hope for it, to pray for it. And so, friends, you are not stuck. We are not stuck as a church. And as we look at our lives, the first thing that we should say is not, what metrics can I change? What cords can I pull on practically? But what does God want to do? And where is He already showing up that I can join Him? You're not forever beholden to what has happened in your past. An in-town story is not going to be what it has always been because there's new creation. And so, I would invite you this week the prayer team is meeting this week, and for us, it'll join there on Thursday. What if that was our mentality? What if we prayed big things like that? Not only back on the prayer station, but in our own lives and as we perhaps gather together outside of Sunday. What if we really believe that new creation has come and is coming and will come forth more? And I would encourage you as an individual to write down that question today to say, what would my life look like if I really thought of myself and saw my life as an embodiment of God's new creation? And then share that with your community group as it meets this week or next week. And everyone do that and have that discussion. And until then, may the gospel be with you, and let's pray. Father, I pray that more and more we would see ourselves through the lens of the gospel and not through the lens of whatever whatever worldly metrics and worldly standards are required of us, and these things are valuable for guiding us in our workplace, and I pray that we would be able to be good workers and abide by them and not be cavalier or laissez-faire, but at the same time understand that they do not define us ultimately. And I pray that as we look at our own little church here, that we would not define our relationship here just by what it provides for us or by the exchange of religious goods and services, or by the fact that we are not as big and bold and as significant apparently as other churches, but that we would be content to find the story that You're writing for us, that we would be content to look for new creation here in this tiny little sanctuary. And Lord, I pray as we look that we would see it, that You would reveal it to us, and we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen.